For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So, Finding Peace. We talked last week, this is week two of this Finding Peace series. We talked last week about our rationale for this series. You know, we're looking around at our college campuses, our high schools, even our junior high, and seeing mental health crisis. Depression is up. Anxiety is up. Suicides are up. Self-harm is up. Leaves us wondering, where are we going to turn in the face of this? And so we wanted to spend a couple of weeks taking a look at this subject. We wanted to look at what does science have to say about finding peace and about finding happiness? And also, we wanted to think about not just what science has to say, but also what ancient biblical wisdom has to say. You know, the teachings of Jesus, and even further beyond that, back into the Old Testament. And see what we can learn, and how these two different sources of, of um, truth interface with one another. What we're really talking about here is the science of happiness. And... Um, you know, if you're like me, you might not have even really realized there was such a thing as the science of happiness, but there's a whole body of research studying what is happiness and what makes for human happiness. And one of the findings that's coming out of the science of happiness, the reason we need to study it is because our minds are, are constantly telling us um, that we want to be happy and how to get happiness, but a lot of times our minds are wrong. And, and these scientists are looking at what makes for happiness and what maybe doesn't help or maybe even hurts our happiness levels. And, you know, we don't just need peer-reviewed scientific journals to tell us this. We have our own personal experiences. Um, for example, I sit, I'm sitting at my kitchen table and I look over and I see a bowl of Halloween candy. And there's a part of me that thinks, I just want to eat that whole thing. But then I look... A little bit further over and I see my running shoes. And there's another part of me that says, you know, theoretically, if I were to put those things on and go for a run, I would really appreciate it. I would be so much happier if I went for a run. And, and yet there's another part of me that, that knows, it knows that's true, but it just simply can't, it can't get up and do it. And, um, you know, we either end up doing one or the other, or maybe both. <laughs> um, could be some pretty bad consequences if I just go with what I feel like doing. And, and scripture says there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And science and scripture both teach us that in our own personal experience. Um, so we want to we think about this subject, the science of happiness. And I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about what exactly is the science of happiness. How do we get our, our metrics for happiness? And I want to say a lot of my research, a lot of the legwork was done by a Yale professor named Dr. Laurie Santos. She's a Yale professor of psychology. Here she is. And um, her story goes something like this. She was looking around seeing the same things that we are, the mental health crisis. And it was really bothering her to see the unhappiness levels, the stress levels in her students. And so she wanted to do something about it. So she pulled together all of the latest research. And in spring of 2018, this is, this is a year and a half ago, she put together a course called Psychology and the Good Life. And she just surveyed all the literature on this subject. And her goal was to teach it to her students. Her goal was she hoped to get 30 students in this class. And one of the things she wanted to do is she was going to give them happiness homework. The practices that make for happiness in the scientific literature, they were going to do the homework, and then she was going to track their happiness levels throughout the course of the semester. Well, she ended up with 1,200 students, 
a quarter of Yale undergrad students poured into this class. They had to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger classrooms for it until finally by opening day, they were in the largest meeting hall that Yale has. Here they are in this class on the science of happiness. And um, she said, I had to recruit 28 grad students just to grade all the exams. It was a logistical nightmare. Just, just, just to offer a midterm, they had to secure 13 classrooms across the campus. She said she jogged two miles just trying to get to all the students by the time the exam was over, going from classroom to classroom. Um, they had a TV, a TV camera crew filming every lecture. Once, once word got out that a Yale professor was teaching on happiness and giving happiness homework, every lecture, partway through the semester on to the end, was filmed by a camera crew. She also said it was pretty bad because she couldn't get her data. You know, she was just so overwhelmed with the logistics of the class that she missed this prime opportunity to study her little guinea pigs that signed up for the class and to test their happiness. And so what they did was, after the class was over, they decided to put the class online. And they thought, we'll try to study the people who take the online course. Now, online courses aren't super popular, uh, but they put it up for free. And what they found is that... Again, this is only a year and a half since the live version of the class ran. The online version is already well over 300,000 enrollment. You can tell she's really striking a nerve here with this class, can't you? And what they did was they studied the, the well-being of the online students. They gave them a 23-question standard happiness survey at the beginning of class, the end of class. And what they found is that pretty much on every happiness uh, metric... Their students were showing uh, remarkable increases in happiness. Average increase of 25% happiness from a 6.5 to a 7.9 on a 10-point scale is what they found in these students, which shows that um, some learning can have an effect, can have a real effect that is measured in actual happiness in our lives. So I signed up for the online course when I first heard about it, and um, I failed miserably. I, as I was signing up, I was like, whoa, this is a 10-week thing. I'll get back around to this. <laughs> and I never got back around to it, so I failed a happiness class. <laughs> but the good news was, because I had signed up for it, um, I don't know, several months after I had signed up for it, I got this email that said, thanks for signing up for the happiness class, Psychology and the Good Life. We wanted to let you know about this podcast called The Happiness Lab. And uh, what's great about this podcast is it takes all these college lectures and it boils them down into very well-produced 35, 40, 45-minute episodes that take all the research and findings from the class and they package it in podcast format. And it's, it's very well done. So uh, I owe tremendous gratitude to this podcast. This, I was all over this thing and uh, there are about nine episodes in. And if you've listened to it, you're going to see a lot of familiar stuff here. But part of what I'm doing is, not, is trying to boil it down, but also present some, some biblical perspective intertwined throughout this. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, um, I'm going to give us some information from four interviews she does over the first two episodes that I thought were super interesting. And uh, let's just see what we can learn about happiness from these four interviews, these four experts in happiness. The first one was an interview with a woman I cited last week, Sonia Lyubomirsky. I'm just going to call her Sonia. Um, she's a psychology professor at the University of California, Riverside. She's written a couple best-selling books on happiness. This is her book, The How of Happiness, pictured up here. And um, she and Dr. Santos, 
they talked about several things. They were just trying to give an orientation to the subject of happiness. And one thing they asked was, how do scientists define happiness? That's a really good question. What is the scientific definition of this? You know, is it E equals MC squared? Is it force equals mass times acceleration? Um, no, Sonia says the first component has to do with the experience of positive emotions, right? Happy people tend to experience more frequent positive emotions, tranquility, enthusiasm, joy, pride, affection. But that's not enough. The happy person also has a sense that their life is good, that they're satisfied with the way that they're progressing toward their life goals. So you really need both of these components to be happy. And she says very succinctly, I like to think of them as being happy in your life, that's the experience, regular experience of positive emotions, and being happy with your life. So what about you? How are you doing on that happiness metric? Are you happy in your life? Are you, are you experiencing some of those positive emotions she talked about? Are, are you happy with your life? Are you happy with the direction your life is headed? Unfortunately, even a lot of Christians really might answer no to these two things. They walk around tortured for Christ. And um, they really don't have the meaning and the direction and the purpose that they should have as people who have been adopted by the God of the universe, who've, who've been forgiven and who have their eternity guaranteed. Happy in and happy with your life. So how do scientists measure happiness? That's another one, too. There is no happiness thermometer. It'd be nice if, you know, you could like kind of stick something in your mouth and then pull it out and you could see your happiness levels. So how do scientists measure happiness? There is no happiness thermometer. You know, we can't just, you know, it's like the turkey where the little thing pops out when it's done. That's, there's no such thing when it comes to measuring human happiness. The way they have to do it is simply by asking the person on a scale of, you know, 0 to 10, how happy are you? On a scale of 0 to 10, what would you say in, in response to this question? And so one sample question that they would use is taking all this together, taking all things together, how happy would you say you are? On a scale of 0 not at all happy, to 10, completely happy. So what do you think? How would you answer that question for yourself? On a scale of 0 to 10, what would you say? Would you say you're a 7 or an 8 or a 9? Or would you be like, honestly, I'm probably down in the 5, 4 and a half range? Well, Santos says that self-report score you just gave will correlate with all kinds of real-world stuff. It predicts detailed timetables of your hour-by-hour -hour emotional experience. And what your family members would say if I asked them how happy you are. Your score even correlates with how often you smile in daily life. They've studied all these things. It's really fascinating. The upshot is these seemingly simple questions are much more rigorous than a silly BuzzFeed quiz. They are really scientific instruments. What are scientists discovering about the benefits of happiness? Well, Sonia writes, Sonia says, it looks like happiness might not just be associated with things like more money, better health, longer life, more creativity, better relationships, all of which are pretty good. We tend to think those things will make us happy. But she says, it looks like happiness may actually cause some of those things. Happy people are more likely to get married, live longer. They're more creative. They're more likely to be called back for a job interview. Santos says, consider the case of money. We assume wealth brings happiness, but science shows we might have it backward. One recent study tested whether a person's happiness level as a teen predicts how much money they'll be making as an adult. The scientists track seventh graders in the United States for decades. And teens who report the highest level of life satisfaction at age 12 will end up having a salary 10% above the average when they're 30 years old. 
Seventh graders who report being really unhappy have incomes that are 30% lower than the average. Those teens are still affected by their sad moods more than a decade later, which sounds a little depressing at first because I think back, I think of myself as a happy person now, but I think back to when I was in junior high, I was not a very happy person. I was not a very happy kid. I don't know where I would have scaled on this, uh, tested on this scale here. Um, but part of the point in this section here is that we can actually change. We can actually change our happiness levels. Happiness early in life doesn't just lead to more money later on. It also leads to stronger relationships. Sonia says, one of my favorite studies is called the yearbook study. Women who showed more genuine smiles in the yearbook photos when they were about 21 were more likely to get married at age 27 and had more fulfilling marriages at age 52. It's kind of amazing. If you're sort of positive and happy when you're in college, you're more likely to have a good marriage 30 years later. Part of what it shows is there's something about what these subjects had learned about happiness that led to relationship happiness as well. Santos says, those aren't just isolated findings. The positive effects of happiness are everywhere. People who report feeling lots of positive emotions are less likely to show cold symptoms when they're exposed to a virus. Whoa. One famous study of nuns... found that 20-somethings who express the most happy feelings in their diaries are four times as likely to live into their 90s as those who didn't express as many positive feelings. One of those nun studies. (laughs) And then they ask this question, can we really change our happiness levels? Because if not, what's the point of studying this subject? It's just either either lucky or you're not. Well... Lyubomirsky says, the science suggests that there is a genetic component to happiness, but we have to understand what that means. Identical twins are much more alike in their happiness levels than are fraternal twins, because they share a lot more genetic information, the, the identical twins. And that suggests there is a genetic influence on happiness, just like there's a genetic influence on weight or blood pressure or whether you're going to develop depression or schizophrenia. But just because something is heritable or has a genetic influence doesn't mean we can't change it. The way I see it is that if someone has a disposition that leaves them to be on the more unhappy side, they can become happier. But they have to work harder at it. There's a myth out there that happiness is something either you have it or you don't, and I just think that's wrong. Remember this pie chart I showed last week? She argues that genetic tendencies make up about 50% of our happiness set point. That circumstances contribute only about 10% to our happiness levels in her studies. And that a full 40% of our happiness are intentional activities, thoughts and actions that we do. Some of us, we're just, we're just putting our hope in the 10% and hoping that t- good things happen to us so I can be happy. But no, that, that leaves us a victim of our circumstances. What we find here is there are things we can do that will increase our happiness levels. Here's a second interview I want to talk about. This is Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a psych professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, he's actually got one of the most popular TED Talks in, of all time. He has 30 million views in the TED Talk he did on happiness. And um, he, his qualifications here are he is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. This is probably the longest longitudinal study of happiness that, that we know of. What is this study? It began in 1938. Okay, so we're coming up on, um, let's see, almost 82 years ago, this study began. 
They took 268 Harvard sophomores. They took, you know, sort of the cream of the crop. The people had all the privileges in life, the best of the best. And they got these guys to commit to um, this longitudinal study because they wanted to study these men over the course of their entire lives. But they didn't just take Harvard sophomores. They also went out into the, the, the poorest neighborhoods in Boston, and they got another 456 youths from broken families, families with um, histories of abuse and mental disorders and things like that. And they studied these young men throughout the course of their lives. They were going to study physical, mental health, including blood tests, x-rays, EKGs, brain scans, um, they, they just kept bringing these, these people in. It tracks how subjects felt when they got married, had their first kid, got divorced, widowed, grandkids, when they retired, etc. Included some pretty big names. Turns out JFK was one of the guys in this study, even though we're not supposed to know who's in the study. That's one that was too juicy that they leaked. <laughs> some really big names were studied in this. And most of the original subjects have passed away by now. Um, the Harvard guys would be 100 by now or so. The youths might be in their 80s, the inner city youths, but it's, um, they've, they've been able to study not just the original subjects, but also their children. And so they can do longitudinal studies on how happiness affects your kids' happiness levels. And Bob says, some of what the study found is absolutely no surprise to anyone. We know that smoking is bad for you, and it turns out in our study it was really bad for you. <laughs> we know alcoholism is terrible. Again, no surprise. And then Santos says, what was the big surprise? It's all the things we think make us happy that don't. Wealth does not make people happy, this Harvard medical professor says. Having your material needs met does make you happy. But once you get there, making more money doesn't make you appreciably happier. But that's not the only conception we have about what makes for a happier life. He says the other thing is achieving more at work. There's a reason why we have this cliche, he says. Nobody on their deathbed wishes they spent more time at the office. It's a cliche because it's true. He says, our men, as they were looking back on their lives, as they were at the end of their lives, said the things they were proudest of were not how far they, had, they made it up in the company or how much money they made. No, he says, it was building a family, raising healthy children, having a strong relationship with a partner, teaching their grandchildren to sail. They didn't talk about what they achieved at work or how much money they made. Bob's study showed that the keys to happiness don't often involve what we put time into to become happier. Financial achievement, so we can buy cool stuff, working harder to achieve more in our careers. In fact, she says, his results show that health and happiness often come from the things we sacrifice while spending more hours at work. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. He says, the surprise was in our finding that one of the strongest predictors of staying healthy and happy in your life was having good relationships with other people. Isn't that interesting? Santos says, when we think of happiness, we often think of self-care, but Bob's study shows, and mark these words, focusing only on yourself and turning too far inward is a recipe not only for misery, but for physical health problems as well. 
Selfishness is not just bad for your happiness, it's bad for your health, says this Harvard Medical Longitudinal Study. Bob says, we didn't even believe it because initially we thought there can't be this strong of a connection between mind and body. How could the quality of your relationships determine whether you got type 2 diabetes or whether you got arthritis or whether you got coronary artery disease? It seemed unfathomable, he says. Santos comments, yeah, the big message of Bob's study is that we consider many of the things that actually matter for happiness to be, well, unfathomable. Or at least way lower on the priority list than they really should be, according to the science. Our minds just suck at predicting the kinds of things that will really make us happier. And that means, she says, we end up putting a lot of time and effort into improving our happiness using strategies that just aren't going to succeed. Here's a third interview I wanted to highlight. This is Clay Cockrell, a licensed clinical social worker in New York City. He specializes in therapy sessions for ultra-rich clients. So if you take the 1% of the wealthiest people in the world, it's the top 1% of those are often his clients. And he says, so he's, you know, he's like inside the heads of... The, uh, the richest of the rich. And here's, here's how he starts his interview. He says, if you have an enemy, go buy them a lottery ticket. Because on the off chance that they win, their life is going to be really messed up. <laughs> how did he get in with the richest of the rich? He said, somehow my name got passed around this very small world as someone who doesn't bring judgment on them. What does he mean? Well, if you're struggling with, I can't find a place to park my yacht. I have no judgment about that. <laughs> I'm going to help you. Your problem is as real as someone else's. Do you ever, doesn't that bug you? Where am I going to park my yacht? <laughs> you're reacting like most people react when he tells them that, I'm sure. He says, honestly, the general public, when they find out what I do, they don't have a lot of sympathy for the rich. Because they bought into this idea that they have a certain amount of problems that are related to money. And they have this belief that if I have money, my problems will go away. Right? Don't you think that? But when they find out there's somebody out there that has a lot of money and they still have problems, it busts their fantasy. So this thing they're working toward, I just need a little more money and that's going to solve my problems, it really challenges that belief system. Hmm. Does money make us happy? Good question. Santos jumps in at this point. She cites a couple of studies. One study asked people, how much money would you really need to be happy? What would you say to that question? How much money would you need to be happy? You don't have to say it out loud. Just pick an answer in your mind. She says, people currently earning 30,000 a year said they need 50K to be happier. Some of us might have said even lower than that because we're not making 30K. <laughs> But people earning 100K didn't say, I was happy at 50. <laughs> they said, no, I think 250 would really do it for me. Huh. Two Nobel Prize winning scientists, Kahneman and Deaton, tested how annual salary in the U.S. today, they tested it against three different measures of well-being. 
And what they found is that income does affect well-being for people at lower salary levels. For example, if you earn ten or twenty thousand, then earning more will make you feel less stressed and happier. That's probably a lot of us in this room might fit into the lower income category here as students. But that effect of income on well-being starts to level off, and it does so really quickly. They found if you're earning an annual income of seventy-five thousand, getting more really doesn't help. You don't get less stressed or happier. Your well-being just flatlines, even if you double or even quadruple your salary once you get to that level. That's definitely not what most of us believe. Clay says, "When I first got out of grad school, I made fourteen thousand per year, and I thought, 'Wow, this is amazing.' So you begin to think there's a correlation: more money equals a better life. I remember feeling this way." Was like I can actually afford things now. I'm not worried about money. I have something in my savings. And he says that keeps working. More money, better, more happiness until you get to about seventy-five or eighty thousand dollars, and your basic needs are met. And then what happens? He says the problem is you've learned a lesson. More money is going to make your life happier and easier. But then you start getting more and more money and more and more money. And you realize it's not working like it used to when you went from 14 to 35k. And so you think,、mm, I just need to work a little harder and get up to 250k. That's what I need. She says Clay has seen the problems of the rich firsthand. I thought this was so fascinating. He says they struggle. They're not sleeping at night. They don't have good relationships. And one of their most common problems is guilt. Believe it or not, they buy into the idea that money brings happiness. And so they have this cognitive dissonance. They're so rich yet so sad, it really can pitch them into emotional turmoil. They'll say, "My life isn't perfect, but it should be." Clay says, "I shouldn't complain. I shouldn't be seeking psychotherapy to help me deal with my problems because I really shouldn't have them because I have money." He says it's hard for them to trust people because they've been burned a lot, particularly in romantic relationships because they're rich. People want them for their money, and then you get into prenuptial agreements, and you wonder, are you only getting into this relationship because I'm going to buy you nice things? The majority of the population, he says, on a fundamental level, you're not going to be able to relate to when you're that rich. It's called the one percent for a reason. He says there's a lot of isolation. He gives one example. I had this client that got to be friends with a guy at the local gym. And that weekend, they're saying, "What'd you do this weekend?" Well, that weekend, he just happened to have taken his private jet to Paris to try out this new restaurant. So, what do you say to the other guy on the treadmill when he says, "What'd you do this weekend?" How do you talk about that without feeling like you're rubbing your wealth in someone's face? And he says, "The biggest problem I see is the rich feel trapped by their money." He says, "You know, with most problems we have, you don't like your job, you get a new one. You're in a bad relationship, you, you get out of it. But with your money, he says, you're not going to give it away. You're way too attached to it. It gives you too much freedom, and so you're trapped." He says, "It's like these golden handcuffs. I have a lot of people who say I can't get rid of it because it's amazing, it's great. But God, they say there's so much unhappiness and isolation and guilt that comes along with having this." Santos says, ironically, then the rich fall prey to the same bias we do. Maybe the problem isn't the money. Maybe they just need a little more. 
He says, I work with people who had $50 million and they say, yeah, but I can't do everything that I want. There's this wonderful painting I'd like to get that would really eat into my savings. He said this one guy had $500 million, but he had a sense that once I hit that billion, mm, that's when things are really going to change. And Clay says, and you think, that's crazy. You have more money than you could possibly spend. But he says they're searching for happiness. He says, and people don't believe me when I say they're searching for happiness. And I understand it's hard. It was hard for me to think that at first. But after living in this world and working with these people, I understand money is not going to buy you happiness. So be careful what you wish for. Wow. Haunting words. You know who got me thinking of was a guy in the Old Testament, a guy named Solomon, who had a time in his life where he wandered far from God and he tried everything the world had to offer in order to get happiness. And he became unbelievably wealthy. But you know what he says about his reflections on that time in his life? He says in Ecclesiastes 5, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. How meaningless. You will never have enough if you're looking to that for your happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Relatives coming out of nowhere because you won the lottery. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy 6. People who long to be rich fall into a temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. It's hard to get more negative words into a single sentence. Temptation, trap, foolish, harmful, plunge, ruin, destruction. That's seven. For the love of money, famous verse here, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Don't underestimate the lure of money. In Proverbs 30, the inspired author prays, give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want either one. That's exactly what the science is finding. You want neither poverty nor riches. Here's a fourth interview. This is with a guy named Dan Gilbert, not the owner of the Cavs. <laughs> the, the Harvard psychology professor, in case you were confused. <laughs> the Cavs owner talking about the science of happiness. <laughs> now that's funny. <laughs> oh man. He wrote, he wrote this book called Stumbling on Happiness. He says, you know, it turns out when people get exactly what they want, they're not always happy. And when they get the opposite of what they want, they're often happy. And he says, that's a mystery that attracts psychologists like me. So he's been studying this for a couple decades now. This puzzle stems from one of our unique, exceptional cognitive faculties. We have the unique ability to run mental simulations of the future. No other creature has this. You know, if you're thinking, I wonder what it would be like to move to Chicago. You don't have to move to Chicago to figure that out. You can kind of imagine what that would be like. 
He says, no other animal can do anything vaguely like it. This is why, this is why the Bible says humans are in a special category, made in the image of God. No other animal can do anything uniquely like this, projecting the future. He says, no chimpanzee has ever thought about whether it's going to look good in a bathing suit when it retires. They're not worried about that sort of thing. But when we try to forecast the future, Dan points out, we tend to, quote, miss the critical details. Miss the critical details. We tend to skim right over things. There's things we don't take into account. We tend to be either idealistic or pessimistic about this future that we're imagining. It's hard to imagine it realistically. This is where experience comes in. If you've experienced something, you're able to imagine more of the realistic aspects of it. Santos says, though, the problem with that is it means our emotional predictions of how these events will feel are way off track. Like you imagine winning the lottery and you picture yourself in a bathtub full of money, <laughs> quitting your job, buying the dream house. You don't think about how um, that's going to just change every single one of your relationships because they're going to want your money, that you really can't run in your old social circles. But the rich, they don't want to hang out with you because you got your money the wrong way, your new money. <laughs> so what are you going to do? That loneliness might offset all the positive benefits of having that money. And you probably had enough to meet your basic needs anyway before. It's hard to predict how we're going to feel. Jonathan Haidt in his book Happiness Hypothesis calls this affective forecasting. It's like, it's like you have weather forecasts, you know. This is like emotional forecasts. This is where you try to predict what's, what, how I'm going to feel tomorrow or next week. If, or, and also in this hypothetical situation. He says we're not very good at it. Dan asks... Would you rather have a weekend in Paris or gum surgery? <laughs> he says, the answer is pretty obvious to most of us. But here's the thing. The weekend in Paris, he says, isn't going to be quite as good as you think it's going to be. Or last as long as you think it will. And the gum surgery, thank God, is not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be. And so we tend to over or underestimate our happiness or unhappiness. He did a study where he asked UT professors to forecast how will you feel when you get tenure, the thing you've been working your whole life for. Most thought they'd be really happy, a six out of seven on the happiness scale, where seven's the maximum. Turns out when they got tenure, they were a five out of seven, a full point lower. What about the other side? He said, how will you feel if you get bad news? They thought, I'm going to be really unhappy. A 3.4 out of 7 on the happiness scale. But how did they actually feel? Over a point higher when they got rejected. A 4.7. 30% higher. And did you notice the ones that got tenure and the ones that didn't? It was a 5 out of 7 versus a 4.7 out of 7. There was barely any difference. They've studied this in all kinds of different areas. Getting a bad grade. You know how you're like... Elated when you get a good grade, but then you kind of return back to that normal point. Recovering from a breakup. You think this is going to be the end of the world. This feels like death. And it turns out you, you come back to normal. Failing your driver's test. Job applicants who don't get the job. Patients getting either positive or negative test results. They've studied them all. And they found that we tend to be not that good at predicting how happy we'll be and that we come back to normal. Santa says this is another way our minds lie to us. We don't notice we have a tendency to get used to stuff, even when something feels amazing at first. This is a phenomenon psychologists call hedonic adaptation, where our feelings kind of come back to a level point. The good and bad events don't move us up or down for as long as we think. 
And so that's something that I think is applicable. It's something to keep in mind. We tend to project our feelings out into the future. We're having a bad day and we think, I'm going to feel this way forever. I've got to make radical changes to my life. And it might just be, this is how you feel today. And tomorrow, you might feel better after you wake up and, and eat breakfast. There's times where I'm just hungry. <laughs> That's all it takes. I just eat and I'm good. <laughs> Emotional reset. This is what science shows as well. And uh, scripture. Scripture talks a lot about suffering and how temporary and short-term suffering is in light of the big picture. It's constantly helping us to face the suffering of today by looking at the bigger picture and looking at eternity. Like Paul says, he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that's while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Yes, there are eternal realities that we must keep in mind. And someday, very soon, for the Christian, the pain will be over and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there's a tremendous amount of joy to be had in this life. And it might come sooner and quicker than you think. I'll return to just a little bit more from Sonia Lyobomirsky. She says, the science, uh, Santos, in her, kind of the end of her interview with her, says, the science of happiness works a lot like the science of exercise. It's not enough to know what you need to do. You've got to go and do it. And you need to put that science into practice, and you need to practice it regularly. She says, even happiness experts like Sonia know firsthand that reaching an 8 out of 10 and staying there takes conscious effort. Sonia says, I do have to work at it. I mean, a classic example is sometimes I get together with friends and it's so great and it's so much fun and we think, why don't we do this more often, you know? But then it takes like months for us to sort of get together again and to plan it. The relational side of life. I have to kind of put it in my to-do list to make sure I create times that I spend with those people. It's a very deliberate act. It'd be so nice if happiness came easily, like we hang out with a friend once and we're happy for good. But that's just not how human well-being works. She says, women's magazines will call me and they'll say, can you give me some five-minute happiness strategies? And I'm like, there are no five-minute happiness strategies. It's true with any kind of goal in life, right? It's not going to happen in five minutes on a Thursday, right? Now, an hour on a Thursday night <laughs> from 8 to 9 p.m., that might get you somewhere. It's going to be maybe a lifelong effort, she says. Creating habits, I guess, would be one way to put it. You must create habits that you maintain over the course of your life. She says, the ones I tend to focus on, and actually quite a bit of research is focusing on, is gratitude and kindness. Both very biblical values. What's called pro-social behavior. We talked about gratitude last week, right? How many of you did it? Don't raise your hands. How many of you did it once and then kind of petered out? She says, you know, to me, gratitude seems really hokey. You know, counting your blessings. I'm so grateful for X, Y, Z. Um, she's like, I feel kind of dumb doing it. It seems so simple. But Santos says, the problem is as hokey as these sound, they work. And that's what the science shows. She said when she was teaching that class, psychology and the good life, she says, um, the students had a hashtag, hashtag hardest class at Yale. And it's not because the homework was harder than the, you know, advanced calculus they were doing. The homework was, 
Medi you know, journal for five minutes and write down three things you're grateful for. But the students were having a really hard time doing it. As simple as it was and as provenly effective as it was, they were having a hard time doing it. And she says, she's like, I, I feel the same way. It's hard to do these things even though I know they're true. And she gave this quote. She said, human nature and our lying minds makes changing our behavior super, super hard. Man, isn't that interesting? That's very biblical. Very biblical. Deep down, there's something within us that's trying to sabotage ourselves. Galatians says the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. So you can't do the things that you please. There's something within me sabotaging me. That's what she's finding and that's what scripture says too. Let's try to summarize. I hit you with a lot here. What we've seen is that science can tell us a lot about happiness. And we looked at four different interviews, didn't we? One from Sonia. We learned your choices and actions can improve your happiness. There's something you can really do about it. You're not a victim. And happiness will have ripple effects, positive effects in every area of your life for the rest of your life. But it doesn't come easily. If there's no five-minute strategy, you don't just do something once and you're good. You've got to develop habits that lead to happiness. From Bob and from Clay, who study the rich, the famous, what did we learn from them? They both said, we put a lot of stock in riches, but not enough in relationships. And in fact, health and happiness often come from the things we sacrifice while spending more hours at work. There's a real lesson to be learned there, isn't there? We need to learn how to develop the relational side of our lives, which is what we're going to talk about some more next week. And finally, what did we learn from Dr. Dan? We learned that on our own, we're not that great at predicting what will make us happy. And that we tend to think our bad feelings will last forever. But one of the most fascinating comments and all that I heard from him was that deep in our hearts, we yearn for eternal happiness. Let me close with, let me close with a quote from Dan. Here's what he says. It's just a hard and fast truth that you can't stay at 10 out of 10 forever and ever and ever. Deal with it. People mistakenly think they can. They think happiness is a place that if they could get to it, they could build a house and live their entire lives there. It's only a vacation destination. It's a place you can visit more and more often if you do the right things, and you can stay longer and longer, but you can't stay forever. This is an important thing to know because people often feel if their happiness has come back to baseline after something wonderful has happened, something's wrong. Why didn't this marriage, this child, this promotion give me the eternal happiness I was seeking? Because there is no such thing as eternal happiness. Mm. I mean, I would agree with them for the most part. In this life, our happiness levels will vary. We live in a broken world, in broken bodies broken minds and we can learn how to have more and more joy in our lives but what I would disagree with is this last statement there is no such thing as eternal happiness because what C.S. Lewis does with this 
is he takes this observation from Dan and he takes it one step further and he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what I think that Dan's statement is pointing to, that we were made for another world. And scripture says, yes, that's exactly right. You were made for a lo- another world, the place you've been longing for your whole life. This is the home that you've never been able to come home to. But through Jesus Christ, one day when you die, you can. As the psalmist writes, in your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. That can be your experience. Yeah, Lord, you've made us in your image, and it's um, so satisfying for me to see that biblical worldview backed up in these different studies. Um, Thank you, God, that you teach us the way of life, that we don't have to learn this by trial and error, but we can just follow the things you've been saying all along. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the many, many transformed lives, Lord. Thank you for taking me, a joyless person, Lord, and giving me joy. Um, And uh, I'm looking forward to that, that promise that in your right hand are pleasures forever, Lord. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.